This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everyone, and thank you so much for joining Watermark's podcast series, Women of the C-Suite, where we have the pleasure of hosting some of the most distinguished female executives anywhere about their journeys and the paths they took to get to the top. I'm Nicole Ward-Parr, and I join you with my co-host, the CEO of Watermark, Peggy Northrup. In this series, we draw out meaningful insights and candid perspectives that will help you to make your mark. Hello, I'm Peggy Northrup, CEO of Watermark, and I'm thrilled to kick off our new series of conversations with women in the C-suite with Miriam Rivera. Miriam is the managing director of Ulu Ventures, one of the most successful early-stage venture funds in Silicon Valley. Miriam joined Google in 2001 as its VP and general counsel and has been a champion of diversity in tech for many, many years. That passion is reflected in the way Ulu invests, and we'll be talking about the power and relevance of that approach for all of us, wherever we are in our careers today. So Miriam, again, thank you so, so much for being here. I wanted to give you an opportunity to talk a little bit about all of the experience that you have You've been an entrepreneur, an attorney, a C-suite executive, and now an investor. And as managing director of Ulu Ventures, you have more than 120 companies in your portfolio. So as we know, everybody is facing challenges in operating in this environment. So what are some of the top things that you have found that really help people orient themselves in this extraordinary time? For a lot of our CEOs, it's been an incredible, incredibly challenging time. Uh, startups obviously don't have uh, the resources of public companies, um, and yet uh, I think there have been a lot of startups who have made efforts to try to um, retain people, uh, to keep people on healthcare, um, and to be uh, very proactive in this COVID environment. Um, some of our own CEOs, um, including uh, Rachel Carlson at Guild Education, um, were really at the forefront of uh, encouraging CEOs to um, consider uh, keeping staff on payroll, furloughing staff so they would retain um, health benefits, um, and working remotely so that we could flatten the curve. Um, and so a lot of our companies have been uh, doing that since even before uh, shelter-in-place orders came down. The CEO position in a startup um, is a, a really a triage function in a crisis. Um, and, you know, we've been around the valley enough to have been a startup in 2001, in a, at a startup in 2001 uh, at Google um, and also in the 2008 crisis um, both as a trustee at Stanford and um, as a, a managing director at Ulu, um, kind of going through these crises in the past. So uh, the good thing is um, there's a lot of characteristics that are similar across times uh, where you have to really um, understand uh, how much uh, capital do you have available um, for what period of time? What are the scenarios that you can envision uh, needing to uh, be in either not ability to fundraise, 
um, maybe not able to generate as much revenue? Um, what are the real revenue um, prospects that you have uh, in the current environment in a crisis, as well as uh, making internal decisions about how you reduce expenditures? Um, most of our teams have had some level of salary cuts, um, some level of uh, layoffs, and some level of uh, expenditure cuts. Um, and we think that's uh, pretty common across the board. Uh, but we think that they're in a strong position. And there really is something to um, adversity is uh, actually does create kind of more creativity in people and focus. Well, and obviously we had the pandemic, which is a huge challenge. And in the last couple of weeks, we've had the murder of George Floyd and the protests around that. So it's like add on top of the stress of managing in the pandemic. We now have the stress and perhaps also the opportunity of addressing addressing diversity, addressing our commitment to diversity um, in a whole different way. You've been such a champion from the very beginning of investing in diversity. You talk about how diversity is profitable. We can talk about that. But just at this moment, you've written a lot about being an ally in a diverse community. Can you talk about that? It's like, what's working with your, with your companies? How do you see it? What should we know? whether we're in a corporate environment or in a startup or just an employee, what, what should we know? Well, I think that any corporate manager or leader really needs to be aware that um, these events have differential impacts on communities within their organizations. Uh, and so I think for many people, when we see some of the statistics around uh, COVID, for example, um, only 10% of whites know somebody who has died of COVID, whereas a quarter of Latinos do um, and a third of African-Americans do. Uh, when we uh, look at the uh, statistics around uh, police uh, brutality, I'll call it, um, the statistics are that African-Americans um, die at over two to two and a half times uh, the rate that they're represented in the population. Um, and that even though, of course, um, whites die in greater number at the hands of police, they die um, relatively at the same rate as they exist in the population. And at least for white Latinos, that's also the case. So there really is a differential impact on the people that are working in your organizations um, from the events that are happening. In addition, um, the protests uh, tend to have a differential impact on the same communities in that um, a lot of the times the looting and the burning is happening in our very communities. Um, and so, you know, one of the things uh, to recognize is uh, that your team members actually need a lot of uh, support within the work environment because they're not only dealing with the same challenges that everyone else on your team is, um, which is trying to um, maintain high performance in a remote environment, um, but also, uh, and having the same challenges as all of us do uh, with pandemic and shelter in place and educating kids at home, um, maybe taking care of elders, for example. Um, in addition, um, particular communities are dealing with this greater burden. And so trying to be aware of that and trying to help create opportunities for both um, helping team members 
process this experience um, in appropriate ways at work or making sure that you're having appropriate um, resources uh, to help teams uh, with the interpersonal side of what is going on, I think is really important. Um, and some of that is done through, you know, team check-in. Some of it may be done one-on-one -on -one by a manager um, with particular staff. Um, some of them may be helping to uh, fund and support um, meetings of particular kinds of staff um, it, to uh, be able to process together. Um, and then some of it may be in terms of educational and other outreaches within the company um, that help people uh, to understand what's happening and to understand that differential impact. And then, you know, I'd say that the other thing is that uh, a lot of being an ally is, is actually engaging in a process of self-education um, and also engaging in actions as opposed to talk. And I think that a lot of our companies are proactively um, not just making statements, but are taking different actions on the basis of what has gone on and how it affects their business. Many people have also talked about that emotional tax that our black colleagues in particular have to pay at work. Um, because all of us, it's like, if you're a white woman, you're saying, how can I help? In some ways, it's like, I don't want to have to fix this for you, is what I'm hearing from my, from my Black colleagues. So can you talk a little bit about that? It's like, how do you as an ally avoid putting more of a burden? You talked about education. Is there anything else in particular that we should hear? Well, I think one of, one of the things that I've heard from, uh, some white people within organizations um, that has been really helpful to them um, is actually uh, having focused groups around these topics for their education, but they're in charge of their education. Um, and so part of that has been uh, reading groups. Uh, for example, one gentleman who worked at a private wealth management um, organization um, had undergone a curriculum that was called Decentering Whiteness. Um, and that involved a lot of um, readings and discussions in small group where people were able to, um, in a community of their colleagues, um, actually discuss these issues and understand it. But the lead was not like, oh, you know, now the diverse people have to put this on for us. Um, which is actually what often happens in diversity initiatives within companies is, you know, the women and the minorities always running them. Um, and I think that this is saying, no, we are going to own our learning and education. We're going to bring in the facilitators or the curriculum. We're going to choose um, some of these books. We're going to have our people of color participating along with us in doing this. I think that's a way that allies um, can really move the agenda forward and uh, you know, just as in other areas of your life where something is really deeply meaningful to you, you would engage in a self-directed program of learning. Great, great. That's really helpful. Thank you. So nearly a third of Ulu Ventures CEOs are women, which is a wonderful amount, and a quarter are minorities. And you have often said that diversity is profitable. Can you talk a little bit about that and why diverse teams are good for the bottom line in general? So 
one is this, I guess, insight came to me when I was um, working at Google when it was a relatively small company. I joined when it was about 160 people. And over time, Google became one of the fastest growing companies in America. Um, in the five years that I was there, we uh, went from like 85 million in revenue to $10 billion in revenue. So, so it was a rocket ship. And one thing that I noticed that people failed to appreciate was how the diversity in the company was actually facilitating that kind of growth. And in the early team at Google, there were 13 original vice presidents. There were three women, which is actually very high by technology company standards. Um, there were two immigrants. The first CFO was Cuban-American. The first general counsel was African-American, the son of Tuskegee Airmen, uh, an airman. And then, um, you know, even uh, one of the founders was a child of immigrants. So one is it, it already had a different composition from what you might normally expect in a tech company. But I think that that diversity of the teams actually helped make the companies very successful. Um, and in, in light of that, I, when I started Ulu Ventures, I appreciated that diverse teams um, could be high performing. You know, I didn't have a bias that they were somehow inferior. In fact, I'd seen them be exactly the opposite, the best way to, um, to move forward and to grow revenue and to um, build killer teams. And so um, we started doing that. Uh, and we have focused on women, underrepresented minorities, minorities, and immigrants as kind of our diversity groups um, that uh, we believe can be helpful to that. Um, again, there are other aspects of diversity that we value. Um, so don't, you know, don't let that seem like a limit. It's more just that those are some of the specific ones that we measure. And some of our companies that are um, women-led include um, Guild Education, um, where we were first round investors. Um, that's the first woman-led unicorn in our portfolio. Um, they've raised over a hundred uh, million dollars to date. They're valued at over a billion dollars. Um, they are providing uh, education uh, and tuition reimbursement uh, service management uh, to uh, companies like Walmart. Um, and the thing is that there's so many ways in which that company is a winner, right? So they're a winner financially because they are um, generating really large revenue agreements um, with companies um, that are leaders in the space. Um, they are winning because they are helping to educate um, frontline Americans, um, and that is creating uh, both retention and positive morale for those employers. Um, and giving them a pool of promotable um, people from within. Um, so, you know, the companies are winning, the employees are winning, and the employees are also getting an education, which is portable. So as they um, move in their career, they're taking, uh, you know, just better, uh, better performance and better capabilities with them. Um, and, you know, they're winning in the sense that uh, I think they've also uh, proven that, uh, investing in women is profitable. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. And it sounds as though there are all of those follow on effects for society as well. Um, really cracking the retraining workers co uh, code is, is really, really important for the future. That's fantastic. So one thing I want with COVID, they've also entered into that market of actually retraining people that are being laid off and helping them uh, to make the transition in the short run. So we just, and I want to just emphasize how often it is the case that um, when women are leading companies, they are looking for win-win-win solutions. And that is one of the super exciting things about working uh, with women-led companies in, in our portfolio. Um, so some questions are starting to come in um, from, our, from our attendees today. And one of them is uh, the discrimination against, um, against people of color is obviously there, but there's still also this, this general discrimination against women leaders. Are you still seeing and feeling that? I mean, obviously you felt it. We've all felt it in our careers. Are you still seeing that? And what do you, do you think there's hope for us? Is this going to go away? <laughs> you know, I, I actually think that um, in many ways, uh, being a woman is one of the most difficult um, challenges of succeeding in the workplace. Um, and, I, and, you know, of course, I'm in a particularly privileged uh, group of people in the sense that um, I was a full scholarship student at Stanford as an undergraduate and um, also received financial aid um, in part for my uh, JD MBA. Borrowed a lot to do it as well, but, um, but I think, you know, because of that, you know, I check the qualified um, box that is often used as a hurdle um, that minorities can't overcome. But then when it comes to uh, uh, being women at work, it, you know, it's still the case. Uh, I think that most of us are in meetings where um, an idea that you just expressed is like literally taken over by others and is not uh, attributed to you. And, um, or that you know, sometimes I've been in uh, meetings where uh, when I was younger, an associate who was white male and I would be taken out to lunch by a partner, by the end of that lunch, the partner would have invited the male white associate in front of me to uh, uh, participate in something like golf or other outings that I was not going to be included in. Um, and so I see that still um, as a, a real challenge. Uh, and, you know, the difficulties of, of, uh, parenting and, you know, if you become a mother and you're working, the impact it does have on many women's careers and uh, their economic uh, earning potential is just really clear. And we act like it's still something unusual that people have to have children. <laughs> um, so I think there's a long way to go. Um, I do think that uh, one of the key things that will make a difference is having different leaders in these positions where they have the awareness of these issues. They have lived experience with them. So creating companies that are run by women um, and women fund and also um, take them to become public companies, I think will be a, a big factor because like with a company like Google, we've seen how it changes the world. Um, and there's no reason why uh, the next Google isn't going to be run by a woman and isn't going to have um, some of the things that I think women would uh, just assume anyone with common sense would implement, which are like near site uh, daycare 
um, and other things that facilitate um, women's ability to work. This is all being exacerbated and amplified by the fact that so many companies are now saying you can work at home forever. It's like, well, that's easy for you to say if you don't have children at home. So yes, it's obviously something we have to think about inside our companies. One, one question that I, I have, again, coming in, um, there are a lot of the C-suite leaders on the, on the call today, and can you talk a little bit more about the responsibilities that C-suite leaders have to engage in the diversity and education inclusion initiatives rather than siloing it off into a, well, we've hired a diversity leader, and so now I have to talk about checking the box, right? We know that that's happened in a lot of companies. Can you talk a little bit about what's the most effective way for C-suite leaders to engage on those issues uh, inside their companies? First of all, it is participating personally in a growing awareness around how issues of diversity arise in your organization, right? So when we're talking about um, working from home, for example, um, there's obviously a very low awareness of how difficult that would be with children also educating in the home um, and how that might, that work sometimes gets distributed within our homes. You know, when I was working um, as an executive at Google, I didn't know any woman senior leader who didn't, who had a husband who stayed home. <laughs> we all had working husbands, but even in my own team, I would say that 70% um, of the guys had somebody who stayed home. Um, and so they are not experiencing the same juggling challenges as um, women who have uh, working partners, whether they be male or female. But I think the, the notion is that the more divorced you are from the reality of what's happening with your teams, you just aren't going to come up with good solutions. And having it delegated and not being personally aware is, is just not going to make you a very effective problem solver. Thank you all so much for joining us today. I'm Peggy Northrup, CEO of Watermark, and along with my co-host, Nicole Ward-Parr, I invite you to check out all of our upcoming programs at wearewatermark.org. With best-in-class leadership training and inspirational fireside chats with awesome coaches, entrepreneurs, and women business leaders every single week, we're dedicated to helping you become the leader you're meant to be. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>